What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Drunken Boxing Podcast. Let me give you a bit of an update here. We are now, well, today is the 15th of February, 2020. Um, I'm sure the world is uh, fully aware of the situation, um, not only in China, but seems to be affecting the world with this coronavirus, been renamed COVID-19 lately, um, and how it's affected uh, the world, but more particularly China, where I am in Beijing. Although it's not as bad as the uh, Hubei province and Wuhan, um, for sure, in terms of infection, it's not as bad, but in terms of, or it's also not as bad in terms of lockdown and uh, restricted freedom of movement. Uh, obviously, they have their reasons. I'm not going to get into that. But here in Beijing, we have had basically, since just before Chinese New Year, we've had uh, the instruction to remain at home. Companies are closed. Uh, people aren't being told to go back to work. Schools are closed. Universities are closed. For the time being, it seems like until at least the end of March. And since about the Chinese Lunar New Year, which was 25th of January, up until now, I've basically been indoors all the time, apart from grocery runs um, and the occasional uh, trip downstairs to get something, we are basically in our apartments all the time. So with that, as you guys know, my podcasts, I prefer to do them in person. Um, it's a lot more intimate. It's a lot more sincere than doing it by uh, phone call or uh, online voice call or something like that, uh, I find that people seem to open up more. With that being said, and the current situation, um, that's kind of put a bit of a pause in our, my ability to interview people. Um, but in order to give you guys something to at least tide you over for this month, um, I have here a podcast that I did. I was a guest on another podcast called the Talking Fist Podcast. Um, about two months ago, and this podcast uh, was a pretty, it was a pretty in-depth discussion um, on Xing Yichuan, Bagua Zhang, other related Chinese mar martial arts topics, etc. And um, the host of the Talking First podcast, Ryan Patrick St. George, um, is, a, is actually, uh, uh, he's got a very good perspective and outlook on how he uh, asks questions and interacts with, uh, with guests. So I'm putting it up here in case you missed it over there. Uh, should be of interest to people, irrespective of your personal mar Chinese martial arts or martial arts practices, but specifically for those key disciplines which I practice myself. Um, we actually um, cover a lot of uh, very often asked questions and dispel a lot of often misunderstood beliefs and myths regarding Chinese martial arts, practices, theories, underlying uh, ideas, etc., which I found uh, far too prevalent amongst Chinese martial arts practitioners worldwide. I often find myself answering a lot of these questions over and over again. So it was good to be able to address at least some of these in this podcast. And uh, that, that should be of interest to a lot of people, I, I, I would suppose. Um, I would also suggest and recommend people check out uh, the Talking First podcast for his other shows, which he uh, interviews quite a variety of martial arts people from differing disciplines and styles, and uh, it's a it's it's a fair, fairly well presented and discussed uh, podcast. Um, with that, I'll put all the show in the show notes. I'll put the links, etc., to the Talking Fists Talking Fists podcast for you guys, so you can find that too. Um, I hope you enjoy this one and stay safe out there, everybody. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan St. George with the Talking Fist Podcast. Today with me, I have with uh, today with me I have Byron Jacobs 
Uh, he's been living in China for several years. He's, he's a former Wushu athlete, and he's kind enough to join me today. So, Byron, thank you very much for being here, and how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, we've been trying to set this up for a while, so I'm glad we got it going today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you for your patience as well. Um, now, I know you like to drink during your podcast. We can't see each other, but I can go get a glass of whiskey real quick if you've got some whiskey. We could have some whiskey as we do well, this. If we, if, we start drinking, if I start drinking whiskey at 10 a.m., because um, that's the time here. It's your evening, but my morning. But you go ahead. You go ahead. I've just had my. I've just had another cup of coffee, so I'll be drinking that this morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, next time, maybe next time I visit China, I'll, I'll head to Beijing, and we can we can do this. Oh, oh. Then we'll totally we'll totally have some drinks together. Yeah, yeah. I just hate to drink alone. Okay. So let's get straight to it. I know you've you've gone over your background a lot in other podcasts. I've heard you on Ken Golet and I've on your own podcast you talked a bit about it. Um, and on uh, real fake swords and fake real swords, I believe. Um, that's an interesting yeah. podcast as well. So I don't want to go back over that. If anyone wants to know about your background, they can check those out. I kind of want to explore different things with you. Um, go ahead. Now, your Xingyi and Bagua is your main arts right now. Correct? Yes. Okay. What, um, this is kind of a, a bit of repetition, but I still want to hear it again. Why did you get into Shingi? What drew you to that? Because you were a Wushu athlete and you, you've done a bit more, like, I think you've done Judo and Karate before, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I started with Japanese arts as a child and uh, Judo was one of the uh, extracurricular activities in my primary school when I was mm -hmm. a so when I just started like primary school, like grade school, I don't know what you call it in the, in the States, but first year of school, we had uh, judo as an extracurricular activity. And I was already like martial arts crazy. I'd watched Bruce Lee movies mm -hmm. and, you know, and I wanted to do martial arts, but that was the only one that was within reach. Um, so I started with judo at school and I, I loved it. And I did karate after that because uh, it was also something that was practiced within my family. My uncle was an instructor. So I did those two arts mainly, and I did some Japanese eclectic Kempo style in my teens, well, 10, 11, around there, after that age, and before I started doing Chinese Wushu. Right, right. Okay. Back to your question. Um, look, I mean, I'd done, I'd done a various amount of different styles when I, when I did when I became a competitive athlete, I did specific styles that were uh, that are featured at world championships, but I also did some other styles that I was interested in. Um, and Shingi, for me, always stuck out simply because of its aggressiveness and its uh, very, very apparent power, which was hard, clear, crispy. And I just liked the, the attitude, the spirit, and the energy, like its physical energy that... Uh, that it manifested and I always wanted to to do that so that's what drew me to Xing Yi Chan that is awesome very interesting okay uh, my thing is this is that people that do those very physical martial arts like judo and karate and the very athletic ones like sport wushu um, mm. it's kind of hard for me to imagine a lot of people being mature enough to see the benefit in, in, in an internal martial art do you see where I'm going with this Byron um, yeah 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 so how did you get to do that because think about it, judo has sparring karate has sparring it should most kempo styles have sparring too and maybe you didn't spar yeah. in wushu but you were still very athletic moving around and stuff like that what drew you to to the internal arts 
Well, interestingly, just to give you a little bit of background that I don't know if I covered it in other podcasts. When I was doing Wushu at the, at the, at the place that I started training, I, it was about an hour's drive away from my home. And um, I, I actually used to stay there. I used to stay there I, um, mm-hmm. for a few days during the week and I would do whatever was uh, available. I did both forms. But I also participated in some of the Sanda training. So um, I, I just enjoyed martial arts as a whole, you know. And, um, you know, I must say there's something I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to make it sound uh, all. Uh, oh, I can see things that other people can't see. But for me, when I look at a movement and. Uh, OK, okay. All right. So continue, Byron. You were you were staying at that that training facility, right? Yeah, um, the point being that um, you, you, you asked the question as to people that come from a very physical background, why would they want to be interested in, uh, in internal art like Xinyi? Well, um, I was saying that as, as my, I mean, I look at movements and poss- everybody looks at movements in their own way, and that's probably matured over years as well. But I don't really need to look at a million movements to see some key points there about uh, power, practicality, issuing of force, uh, connectiveness with your whole body movement, etc. And that was one of the things that stuck out. I mean, you could see it in a good boxing punch. If you watch Tyson in his prime when he was hitting things or just moving and shadow boxing, you can see it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's there. A really high-level karateka just needs to do one punch and you can see if the punch is a very uh, connected, high-level movement or just superficial and uh, and weak. And Xingyi, from what I'd seen from some people, expressed these points that really attracted me. And it was just it was just that, that, that I realized, okay, there's something really uh, refined and special here. And... Uh, yeah, that's what drew me to it in that sense. But to, to, to also add to, to that, um, while Xinyi is classified, especially in more recent times, as internal, this term internal, I, firstly, I don't like that classification because I don't think there's any such thing as a purely external style or a purely internal style. I mean, as I said, high-level boxing, if you look at refined body mechanics and connectiveness, well, that's internal principles as we understand them today. So, and the same could be said about any high-level martial art when it's done correctly at a, at a very refined point. So, I don't really like that term. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, for, for me, martial arts is martial arts. Internal, external. I'd rather say good and bad, high level and average. And that's not specifically a problem with the arts as a whole. It's mostly a practitioner, uh, individual problem. Right. And I correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't that term internal, like kind of coined relatively recently? That's not. Yes, it's historical a new term. At all, right? It's a new term. Yeah, it's not. It's not very historical. If we look at it in history, there is an old stale, uh, uh, you know, uh, like a stale, uh, a carved tomb script uh, from a very long time ago that mentions the word. Neijia, but we know very, uh, very clearly in more recent uh, understanding and research into this writing that it was more political writing than stylistic writing. When they were talking about Neijia and Waijia, it was political writing against. Uh, it was at the time when the Manchus were starting to invade China, and they're considered external foreigners, and internal being Han Chinese, the Ming 
and the the the, the, the talking about uh, internal is will defeat external. This was political writing to a degree. So they were trying to hide the anti-Manchu writing that uh, that they were they were putting there. It wasn't necessarily to talk about a style, but even if it was talking about a style. We have no idea, well, not we have no idea. We know that they weren't talking about Shigi, Bagua, or Taiji necessarily. So um, this is what some people connected in terms of trying to say, oh, look, in antiquity there is the term, but that, there, like I said, there's no connection. And the actual coining of this phrase when, in relation to Shigi, Bagua, and Taiji is a very recent thing. When they started to have uh, some uh, practitioners had an interaction with one another here in Beijing in more, much more recent times. So, And even that, I would say, wasn't taken so seriously or as crystallized as people try to pretend it is today. It's almost kind of become, like to me, what you just said makes perfect sense. And when if you actually train in martial arts and you don't get too mystical, you realize that you don't really need to say internal, external. We do it now to be simple, just to com- for communication reasons, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. you notice uh, with some kung fu people, like they they're kind of arrogant. I study in an internal martial art, like they're deeper philosophically or something. Does that make sense? Do you ever get that sense? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, that is the problem. That is, they do that, and then the second thing they try to do is they try to equate internal with something that's not even on the physical realm anymore. It's something that uses a completely different power or drive, or then they go into the mystical energies, which is is not actually uh, even in the old scripts written by, for example, within Shingi uh, canons and other treatises, uh, old writings. It wasn't. It, it wasn't defined as this. Even when they used the word chi, it was so multifaceted, and it was so. It, it had such a wide uh, scope that they used this word for. Um, that today they've taken just bits and pieces of it and try try to extrapolate on that to try and make it. No, it's some mystical power. Meanwhile, the reality is you're talking about people that wrote things 150 years ago that didn't have a scientific background. That they had to use the nomenclature of the of the culture and the times of the people here and the understanding. So Chinese medicine, etc. That was the extent of which they had terminology to use. And uh, that's what they, they latched onto and they used in their writings. But it, 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 it was such a wide, like a, a term that grasped so many aspects. For example, they couldn't explain, um, you know, bioenergy. For example, your body, the energy that it uh, uses to move your limbs, they would just say chi. Right. Or they, they would they would uh, relate certain emotional aspects and just label it as chi. Uh, they would, uh, I mean, even down to the, the, the word uh, uh, for weather in Chinese is tian chi, you know, the sky is chi. So mm-hmm. it's just so, it's so, it was so multifaceted that that we try to look at it today and say they were talking about this point, but they weren't. That's just mm-hmm. not true. Mm-hmm. So around what time did they, did, uh, martial artists in China start saying Nei Jia and Wai Jia. When did that happen? It's in the last 100 to 150 years or so maximum. Oh, very, so very recent. About, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're talking about the turn of the 1800s, early 1900s. So 
um, that's about the time that it started to be crystallized. And incidentally, even the, the classification of Shaolin and Wudang as internal and external also happened around that period, mm-hmm. uh, just prior and including the period of the Nanjing Guoshu Institute. Okay. Uh, they, would, they, they classified the two departments as Wudang and Shaolin. Okay. So, you know, and, and, and actually they dropped that at a later stage. Mm. Was this during the Republic era? Yes. Yeah, it was yes. during the Republican era. Awesome. Okay. Okay. I'm, I remember reading about some of this. You're helping me piece it together, and I think it, you're illustrating a great uh, picture for the people listening as well. I, I appreciate that. Um, now, let's backtrack a little bit. During your Wushu training, what was that like compared to the Japanese styles? Because you, you were a lot younger at the time, right, Byron? If, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, I was... Mm-hmm. I was I was in my teens, so um, you know, for me, w- one of the things that I, I at the time I don't know if you recall back when uh, Jet Li movies started becoming really popular and were finally becoming out into the West, and it was like, oh my God, this guy can really move in Lisa such Weapon dynamic Ford, and right? amazing ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, wushu as a as a competitive sport training. I mean, I just knew I wanted to do some form of. Uh, Chinese martial arts that was uh, likened to what I had seen and uh, wushu sport or competitive wushu training was like it but my teachers were older generation athletes or ex-athletes so their methods of training were similar to the first odd generation of professional athletes in China so it was a heavy focus on stretching and flexibility and basics but there was still a lot of uh, I would say traditional content, like uh, for basics, we would do Tantue, which we learned like as the traditional Tantue lines, you know, that was part of our basics. And we'd learn some Chachuan combinations because, you know, the reality of sport wushu is this, it's been uh, in three big uh, disciplines that are included in the forms competition. There are three main categories and it's uh, Changchuan, which you can translate to long fist, but let's just keep it as Changchun because that's better. Uh, Nanchun, which is southern fist, and Taiji Chun, which are well, obviously everybody knows what Taiji is. But there are three main categories, and within each one, they're supposed to be uh, representative of substyles. So Changchun was mostly focused on styles practiced in the north, but the competitive aspects uh, or the competitive forms they included techniques which are mo- mostly derived from cha chuan, hua chuan, hong chuan, and pao chuan, which are some, some of the styles practiced here in northern China. And tantwe is often practiced within some of those styles traditionally anyway. So I focused on that in the beginning. And so the basics that I did were also derived from cha chuan. I learned a little bit of cha chuan, which was, which was how it was supposed to be. And of course, then the physical... Uh, I, I hate to use the word, but acrobatic aspect of it too, because there were uh, difficulty techniques, like jumping techniques. At the time I started practicing, we were all doing compulsory routines. It wasn't free. Everybody was doing the same routine, but there were some jumping techniques in there with uh, with some acrobatics. Now, Nanchuan on the other side, uh, one of the key points was uh, one of the main uh, style categories was to comprise of styles that are popular in the South. And uh, the, the compulsory routines and methods usually, and by and large, comprised of techniques derived from Choi Lei Foot, Hung Gar, uh, Hop Gar, which is called Sha Chuan in uh, Mandarin, and maybe a little bit of White Crane 
um, and other techniques. And then Taiji obviously is supposed to be comprised of uh, techniques and methods from the various Taiji styles. So, yeah, that's that's in in a nutshell. But I focused in the beginning on uh, on Changchun. And so I was uh, doing the basics of, of that. And incidentally, in more recent times, athletes don't even do, uh, well, I, I don't want to speak for all of them, but in general, uh, they don't practice much of the Tantue basics or the Cha Chuen combinations or a lot of the traditional techniques, which is, uh, which is supposedly what the style is made up of. They're the same in the Taiji side and the Nanquan side. They, the, the shift from compulsory routines to self-created routines and with the introduction of the scoring system for degree of difficulty, which places such a heavy emphasis on the what, what we call nandu or a degree of difficulty techniques, which is all those uh, jumping and acrobatic techniques, they're so important to, and they're such a large part of scoring that a lot of the time the athletes have to focus more and more on that and less and less on the other aspects. And that's why it's it shifted the direction of the sport too. And even down to the judges who who barely understand in general those uh, traditional aspects and methods and from the styles that are supposedly comprising, that the disciplines are comprised of. So i kind of gone off on a tangent, but I wanted to give you a bit more background there. <laughs> no, it's fine. I Tangent away. Go for it. Um, now, so Byron, would you consider your era of wushu training kind of close to the end of like sport wushu having some traditional aspects and compulsory routines in it? Is that kind of the end of, of that, would you say? Well, yeah. The, I mean, I started with the first set of compulsory routines, which were quite heavily uh, based on traditional content. Mm -hmm. um, so I also then learned the second and then uh, following that, when I started becoming an official, I also did the third, obviously, and I've taught the third sets. But we've gone from the first generation to the second generation to the third generation of compulsory set routines. The third generation was made specifically for juniors, and it pushed more degree of difficulty techniques into the junior championships. So now what happened was there was, a, at a younger age, less focus on, I would say, uh, the techniques from the styles themselves and more focus on the on the acrobatic elements because if you have to do those third uh, generation routines they've got a higher degree of difficulty requirement within them so you need to spend more time on it so i would say yes it's affected the the content and what's focused on by athletes over over time and it's it's a it's an issue of the rules and the focus of the competition so that's what's happened um yeah yeah i mean I personally don't have an issue with wushu at all. I know I've heard other traditionalists say it's a modern day heresy. I don't consider that to be the case at all. You know, um, I think as long as people are honest about what it is, it's not a fight sport, obviously, right? So, well, that's the issue here. I mean, we're trying to now sit and say what we understand as what it is, is what it is, and uh, that's okay. I mean, I've, I've got a slightly different perspective, and it's a little bit, uh, you know, I must say over the years and time and my, my background in training, I would say, yes, you can say what you've said is correct, but also no, we can't ignore certain points. So there's a couple of things. One, we're using the word wushu. Right. Whether anybody likes it or not, if you say, no, no, but wushu refers to that competitive flowery stuff. No, we're using the word wushu, which means 
arts, and in this case, Chinese martial arts. And Wu is martial. So let's not forget that it's supposed to have martial content. And secondly, it's supposed to have content derived from Chinese martial styles. So let's be honest about that. If we're going to say we're going to negate all of that and ignore all of that, then we should call it something else too. So for me, um, I think that's one of the key points. The other side of it is, okay, we're trying to create a sport out of this, out of a practice that isn't necessarily a sport. Now, there is going to be some things you lose, but you can't throw everything out. Um, and a good example will be to, to, to look at what karate sport has done, and they, they've got the Olympics and uh, uh, a lot of a lot and, and they've done a better job than Wushu has in terms of their kata uh, because their kata is you, you select a kata from a list of routines that you're allowed to perform mm-hmm. uh, you're not going to create or reinvent karate it is karate by default because the content that you're allowed to do is karate it's recognized and defined as karate mm-hmm. now the only the only gripe would be and I've heard this from from traditional karate people let's say that the methodology or the method of execution and then again the focus of uh, competitive aspects of performance of those kata has slightly shifted from the traditional ideal. All right, but that's a compromise you're going to have to have when you try to standardize and and make a sport out of anything. So uh, for me, I would say that in some aspects, Wushu's gone too far um, uh, off that scale. And it's... It's, it's, well, we can't put a, uh, the label of a banana on an apple and just say, hey, well, fuck it, it's fruit, so just right. deal with it. No, okay, you know, let, let's, let's rather not uh, lie to ourselves and everybody else. And I think there's another way to do it. There's, there's nothing wrong with constant evolution of a sport and going back and saying, right, we messed this up. How do we go forward from here to kind of pull it back somehow? You're not going to make everybody happy. But let's, let's just try and find a way that we can do it better than what's happening now. If something's spiraling downwards, you can't just say, oh, well, it's spiraling. So that's how it is. So you know, you know what I mean? Yes. And that's the issue that, that, uh, that I have and uh, I think a lot of people have. And that was the work I was trying to do in, the, in my position working in the organization for so long, was to try to kind of pull it back slightly into not only from a content point of view for the representation of Chinese martial arts, but this actually affects everything. And this is what people don't realize. It affects the judging. Because if you have no requirements, you have no definition, then you have no basis upon which you can judge. And then it just becomes a personal opinionated thing, That's which gets manipulated and thrown. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. How do these judges judge yeah, it when they don't know traditional martial arts or traditional gong? Well, that's the... That's the issue. So, you know, what, what, when we've, okay, so I'll give you a bit of a breakdown on the judging system of forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it stands at the moment, we've got three, three groups of judges, uh, the, the A group, B group, and C group. The A group judge is called the quality of movements judges, and they have a table of deductions for each uh, style or event that has a list of techniques with errors. And if you see that error, then you do the deduction. Right, so you only you, you're defined very clearly in this table. The B group judges are called overall performance, and they actually award points out of a value of three, maximum being three, um, for aspects like power, speed, rhythm, content, choreography, and style, uh, etc. And uh, that would be 
pretty subjective, but I'll come back to that in a minute. And then C, the C group judges, which are called the degree of difficulty judges, because each routine has to have a registered amount of techniques that you choose from this uh, table of degree of difficulties. It could be jumping tornado kicks to a certain degree with a connection. And then these judges just sit and look at the criteria for a successful execution and either deem it to be successful or unsuccessful in line with that, and you get awarded the points uh, in line with that. Now, the C group is pretty clear. Um, there's You, you register a, a, a 360-degree tornado kick that connects with uh, horse stance, either it's successful or not, in line with the criteria, and you get the points. Now, let's go back to the A group and the B group. The A group is clear because it's defined by the tables, but then it's also limited by the tables. So what that means is that people that practice are only going to focus on those deductions that are limited in those tables as being important points of execution of their techniques, just so they don't get the deductions. That's how sport drives an art. If you're going to give a reward or punishment based on certain criteria, then people over time who are wanting to win will simply focus on that criteria. We've seen it with combat sport too. If you have, uh, for example, the three-point rule now in the MMA, so if three points of contact are on the floor, you cannot knee or kick the guy in the face, what will happen is when you talk about a martial point of view is they will simply put three, the third point down instead of defending their face because they know if you kick them in the face, it's illegal. Now, how does that shift martial arts? In the street, you do not put a third point down and think that your opponent is not gonna kick you in the face. So it affects things. In Chinese martial arts, in Taolu competition, in Wushu Taolu competition, we have the same thing. They are completely guided by these set of rules. And it's important that you modify these rules and adapt them when you see certain problems result. So the A group judges, there's a very, very small scope of deduction there. And I would say the deductions that are, um, that are placed there are of a basic level and not of an elite level or you know, you've got certain aspects within execution of techniques that are crucial in, in terms of the style, in terms of the martial art, and they're not there. So this this is uh, one aspect that uh, um, that needs uh, uh, needs to be kept in mind. But the biggest problem is the B group for the overall performance judges because they're supposedly award. All right, so the issue with the B group judges is it's supposed to be an evaluation by uh, a judge looking at the entire routine as a whole. And the criteria there are things like speed, power, content, rhythm, choreography, style. So we could, we could say these are all comparative. So you're not only going to award points based on your own understanding of these aspects, but you're going to compare each athlete against the following athlete within one division based on these uh, criteria too. So it begs the question is, what is the defining basis of these aspects? What is speed? What is power? What is content? And most importantly, that the word style is there would mean that content coming from the style that is presented should be there. We can't, and, and what it's what it's kind of it used to be quite um, quite uh, uh, split. So when you've got something like a set routine or a compulsory routine, the style aspect is 
well, it's not free because it's already set. Everyone's doing the same routine. So you know that the techniques are from the style. So you're looking at the stylistic expression. But all of these aspects are based on experience of each judge. First generation uh, judges and athletes probably had a greater exposure to the stylistic methods of these uh, traditional styles, their power, their expression of power, uh, etc. How the rhythm would make sense in terms of the traditional uh, methods of these styles, cha chuan, hua chuan, etc. But as we go down the generations, and as people and judges became more refined or focused completely on the sport aspect, the only what's body of knowledge that they have to refer to is what they have learned within that sport. So what happens is it's very hard for somebody to say the style is correct because he's never actually learned any cha He's never actually learned any hua He doesn't understand the stylistic expression method, content, and principle of these styles to say, okay, I'm going to give you a higher score than that one. The only thing they can do is like, oh, well, I know this Wushu's uh, performance routine is considered high level, so I'm going to judge it in comparison to that. So it starts to become very skewed in that regard. An educational process is what is needed. An education is something that has to not just come from a course, but has to come from a lifetime of training and continuous training. So if you're gonna be judging, for example, Nanchuan, you should have experience in the Southern styles, at least some of them. Otherwise it becomes, uh, well, you're judging things based on a criteria that is undefined and it's totally subjective, if you, if you know what I'm, I'm getting at. So that's where we've had this, for me, the biggest problem because it's undefined. Um, unfortunately, what's happened is that a lot of judges are not educated or trained enough in those classical methods. Um, and this is another thing. People, will, especially in the sport, will think, oh, but traditional wushu is something completely different to sport wushu. It shouldn't be considered that. It should. It's, wushu should be wushu. And then the one is just standardized. There are standards for competition. And the other one is just done in line for your own goals and objectives in line with what your teacher teaches you. But it's still wushu. And that's right. where we're having a bit of a, a problem, if right. you ask me. Yeah. You made a good point with the karate comparison, mainly Shotokan karate. Um, I think they've done, like you said, an excellent job of keeping it traditional and yet having a sport aspect to it too. Um, right. And I think one of the, the big thing is, is that they have a formal sparring competition in karate. And yes, I one thing that I, I don't understand with Kung Fu, um, I've trained in Kung Fu and karate styles, is why do most Kung Fu's not have like a formalized Kumite type thing? You know, like there's Sanda, but that's, that's kickboxing and it looks almost nothing like the traditional movements. Why do you think yeah. uh, Wushu doesn't have some kind of formal sparring competition? Well, um, petition would be uh, something that comes out of uh, a society that has stability. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't don't really think about sporting competitions when your when your society is in total chaos. So in times of civil war, or in times of invasion or other wars, your sport does not flourish. There's no time to focus on it. Mm-hmm. The second aspect is if a society is uh, starving, if a society has got famine, if a society is extremely poor then they also are not really going to focus on sport development. So a formalized event like a sparring or a competitive combat event 
usually comes out of stable societies, and we can talk about what stable means for three hours, but that's a whole different uh, kettle of fish. But if we look at China from the last, uh, from the end of the Qing Dynasty up until I would say the 1950s, it was in a period of uh, of chaos. So not only was there a revolution to throw over the imperial system, which lasted a lot longer than other countries' imperial systems, mm. uh, but even before that, there was mass starvation. Uh, then there was the invasions by foreign powers. Then there was the civil war. There was the Japanese invasion. Then there was the civil war. Then there was the, the initiation of the policies of the new government, uh, total reform. You don't have so much time to sit and think about making a sport event. Now, if you throw this in comparison to other martial arts uh, countries like Japan, even though there was the period of, uh, of uh, war outside of Japan when they were doing their, their invasion of China, within Japan, you could see that uh, judo, which was probably the first one to start having a formalized competitive uh, combat format, was coming out of a time when you could say they were relatively insta- uh, relatively stable in comparison to, to China. So um, that, that's one of the reasons I would say that a so-called sporting event that is uh, standardized didn't come out of Chinese martial arts sooner. Even though the Nanjing Guoshu Institute started that, the issue with the Nanjing Guoshu Institute was that it was an experiment and a good experiment that was cut short very early because of the civil war here. So had they had a longer period of, uh, of stability and no civil war, I don't think we'd be having this conversation today. I think something would have come out that is akin to judo's uh, competitive format and karate's kumite format. Uh, so that, that's one of the key points to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, so th- that's, that's one point. The other point is that in the 50s, uh, when the Chinese government decided to start uh, developing Chinese martial arts as a sport, it was a government endeavor. It wasn't, uh, it was from the top down. It wasn't something that flourished from the bottom up. If you compare it to karate and judo, it's something that flourished from the bottom up. And for me, a, you need you need government support, especially in today's day and age, to do something successfully to a degree in this in this field. But it has to be naturally something that evolves from the bottom up. It has to grow uh, naturally from the people and the and the and the circle of civilians. It has to be a civilian practice to flourish upwards. That just gets nurtured by, from the top or supported from the top. Right. In China, it wasn't. It wasn't wasn't something that grew naturally. It was something that the government said, we're going to do this, so you guys over here, and and, and of course their resources were people that were either in the government or working or willing to work with the government. You guys are going to do this, make a form competition. All right, we don't want any fighting. You're just going to do forms. Just make a Chinese martial arts form competition. And then after some time, they're like, oh, shit, we need a, a sparring competition. Let's quickly do that. So it wasn't something that grew out of the martial artists themselves. That's the point I'm trying to make here. Right. So, of course, when Sanda came out, even though it was it was labeled as a Chinese martial arts system, and, and don't get me wrong, it's evolved into a very effective uh, combat system, Um it wasn't something that grew out of the Chinese martial arts practitioners themselves to a degree. They do have sparring and some Thai ideas in certain uh, traditional practices, but not a form. What I'm talking about here is a formalized sport event. 
So that, that's probably one of the key reasons why Sanda is in such stark contrast to practices like, uh, like uh, Kumite or Randori in Judo. Right, right. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, very well said. Because, like, if you look at Shotokan Kumite or any karate kumite, it clearly looks like the traditional training you're doing, you know, in the dojo. And then uh, right. if you see them fight in MMA like Leoto Machida and the few karate fighters that have crossed over, you can clearly see that they're doing traditional Shotokan karate. And I know... Yeah, like Wonder Boy. Wonder Boy's got a good... Uh, a good uh, well, he, he comes from a slightly varied background, but he looks very much the way he moves in the UFC, like a lot of uh, high-level uh, kumite fighters coming out of karate too, yeah, bouncing yeah. on the feet, in and out, in and out, in and out. The yeah. sides, the wider side stance, the kempo. He he comes from a kempo karate background, um, but like, yeah. again, maybe we'll, we'll touch on this a bit later. I was going to go into the kung fu and MMA thing, but not quite yet. I'll backtrack a, a little bit before I, uh, I want to mm. go, go touch on a few other things. Okay, so you talked about we went through went through wushu, which I appreciate. That was interesting. I want to go back to Xing Yichuan. Um Okay. So, just for simplicity's sake, I'm gonna I'm going to say internal, external, if you don't mind. I don't mean to irritate you. Or no anything. problem. Okay. Cool. No problem. Now, uh, for me personally, studying Xing Trend was is more difficult than learning external martial arts. Like, uh, you know, I've done kickboxing, karate, sanda. You know, mm. Ooh, do you consider internal martial arts to be more difficult to learn and grasp than uh, external martial arts? I'll give. I'll use uh, uh, something that might help you understand why that is the way it is. If we look at a martial art as a building, like a building, like a tall, a tall building with a lot of floors in it, mm. we could say that the ground floor that you enter in on would be very rudimentally physical aspects that are based on gross uh, muscular movement and development without so much of a focus on uh, on higher things, which would be the second, third, fourth floor, like uh, structure, connection, whole body coordination. So if you're starting a lot of martial arts, which is a logical way to start, they start at the ground floor with gross physical movements until you have a certain development of muscular um, development and uh, certain coordinated actions in terms of using or utilizing those muscles and your limbs. They start from there. Um, I would say that as you go up the building, most martial arts, if they're gonna, if they're gonna really become high buildings, will go through all of those stages, and you will start to focus on other aspects as you go up the floors, like uh, structure, like connection, like whole body uh, coordinated movement like force generation from using the correct uh, mechanics, waste, routing, etc. As you go up the building, different floors will have higher and more refined methods uh, to develop. Um, so most, most of these styles, they will start on ground zero. I would say the problem with Xingyi and, uh, and uh, Bagua and even Taiji to a degree as well, is that they start from the second or the third floor. They're not really meant to be, their, their method was not aimed at people that have basically zippity doo zero martial ability, especially something like Bagua. We know historically that all of Dong Hai Chuan students had some form of background in martial arts. They weren't just uh, 
people that just came off the street with zero physical coordination. They've never done any martial arts uh, action. They have no strenuous uh, experience in doing strenuous uh, physical activity. They all had this basic. So he started on the third floor. So a lot of the content um, that, and the methods start from a basis that is already developed. And, uh, and it's become, it gets more and more refined as you go up. Shingi, Bago, Taiji, I would say, start you on a higher level. That's like Shingi, for example, we start already day one, sun t-shirt. That's structure training. That's connected structure training. That's what you're doing right there. I'm not even worried about, okay, are you able to even hold your hand in a way that's connected to your elbow, that's connected to your foot. Uh, I mean, that's, that is what you're worried about. That's what you're worried about from day one. Whereas with other arts, you'd be like, okay, let's, let's see if you've actually got a muscle to move your arm. Can you hold your arm? It's gross. So it's gross body function and muscular movement. So the, the requirement that it starts off with is higher. And that's not to say that it's better or worse than any martial arts, because they all go through this. It's just to say its starting point is slightly further down the road. Well, I've never had it explained so well to me before. That's awesome, Byron. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. Very well said. Okay. All right. So when did you start training Bagua? Uh, was it around the same time you started seriously studying Xingyi, or, or when did that start? Okay, well, there's a bit of a reason why I do Xingyi and Bagua. So I had initially wanted to just do Xingyi. That was my, that was what I was looking to do. Uh, my teacher, my master is a person named Di Guoyu. And uh, he is a famous Xingyi practitioner, but he's also a fourth generation Bagua, Liang style Bagua inheritor and uh, practitioner. Um, and my goal was to do Xingyi, but also to simply follow exactly what he did in his training progression. He started off as a kid with his teacher, his Xingyi teacher, doing uh, what would be labeled as Shaolin, but it was, in those days, Shaolin was an eclectic term for various uh, different practices. So I won't go into the details of what they did. It was traditional. It was, some of the routines are quite well known in terms of name, but rarely ever seen, but it's, it was labeled as Shaolin. And he did that because that was ground zero, if you want, if you're coming back to uh, uh, the ground floor, coming back to the building analogy, to set his physical ability. So he did that for a few years. And then in his teens, his teacher, his teacher said, okay, you can start Xing Yichuan. And he made him stand in Santi shirt. And what did his teacher say to him? You have to stand for a long time to wash out all your habits from the Shaolin Chen that you did. And it was the same teacher, by the way, but he was a Xingyi specialist. But he just realized that kids need, and the younger you are, or even, even adults, I would say, need some sort of physical basing of uh, basic gross movement, muscular development, coordination, etc., before moving on to refined methods. So he then did Xingyi for a very, very long time. Uh, he mastered Xingyi before he started doing Bagua. And he started doing Bagua with another teacher, Li Ziming. So I did the same thing. I did Xingyi for quite a number of years on a daily basis with my teacher. And then he said, okay, Byron, uh, I want to start teaching you some Bagua too. And in the beginning, I never had any thoughts here and there about it that I wanted to or I didn't want to. I just wanted to follow what he said. And he said, okay, uh, Bagua's got very good body me mechanics, methods, concepts, and stepping that can boost your martial arts. See, this is what people seem to misunderstand. 
we're learning martial arts. We're not learning styles. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The goal is the, the style is a method to get skill. So you're developing skills. Uh, each different style per se has, has a method to help you develop certain skills. But on the goal should be that you develop skill. So um, as far as I understood it and the way my teacher explained it was that Bagua would help me to further some skills. Some skills. Some skills are already there from Xingyi. Some would uh, help uh, to be further developed by Bagua. And that's exactly what Dong Haichuan did with his students. Uh, the founder of Bagua, Dong Haichuan, his, uh, his main students were Yin Fu, Cheng Tinghua, Liang Zhenpu, etc. Yin Fu was already a Lohan Zhang uh, so-called Shaolin master. Uh, and he taught him Bagua to further develop and refine and take him to another level. Cheng Tinghua was a wrestler. So he taught him Bagua in line with his wrestling to further refine and develop his, his method. So I saw Bagua training as as an ability or an opportunity to do the same thing. So I started learning the Liang style uh, methods. And I, and I must say, I've seen guys come to my teacher and with a direct request to learn Bagua as their first art, as their first martial art. And I, I mean, no offense, but literally if they start with these methods, they very rarely get a whole body sharp, hard power, like a, I would say a killing power. Because Bagua, without a basis, is very, it's very hard to develop a, a skill because it's, it's something that's, what can I say? It's like putting a turbocharger in a car. That's the, that's the point. Mm -hmm. If you don't have an engine, turbocharger might make noise, but you, you know what I mean? So. Yeah. Um, the Bagua that, when I started doing Bagua, I noticed all my shingy body mechanics and force and whole body power coming out. And it's actually something I noticed when I compare my teacher performing Liang style Bagua compared to some of his martial brothers. Just the, the key difference in whole body power, force, an overwhelming and imposing attitude that, that all he developed with his Xingyi before applying it to his Bagua. So I started doing Bagua quite a few years after um, starting Xingyi, and now I practice them both side by side, but Xingyi will always be the core uh, of, my, of my practice. Right, right. Uh, I spoke to Ken Gullet. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that, but he kind of talked about, he said he would say Bagua is the most difficult of, of the three arts he studies, Taiji, Xingyi, and Bagua. Um, mm. All right, so would you need a, uh, going back to Bagua, do you, would you need a background specifically in Xingyi trend to fully under, like utilize and understand Bagua or, or is Taiji? No, okay? no, no, I wouldn't say you'd have to. I'd say uh, you'd have, if you have some sort of a background in, in martial arts, it's going to help you. Um, it's like saying I want to do advanced calculus, but you haven't got a basic mathematical understanding. Uh, you know, you, you should have a basis upon which first, otherwise it's going to be quite hard for you to do the next thing, if you know what I mean. Right. But any martial art background would you think is okay? For sure. Oh, okay. for sure. Okay. All right. So, I mean, because you see a lot of people trying to teach Bagua. I, I spoke to a guy before I moved to Texas that I was, I was communicating with him and he was saying that he went and did some course and got certified in basic Bagua, which sounds really weird and doesn't make any sense to me, you know? And uh, yeah. you, you get a lot of that. Would you say Bagua is one of the 
more difficult styles of learning in an authentic way? You know, um, I would say any martial arts today in today's, uh, especially outside of China, but I hate to say that China is the only place it isn't though. That's not what I'm intending. I'm saying in terms of the, and it happens in China too. So it's not limited to outside of China, but it just seems to be the norm outside of China in the structure and the method and the way that martial arts are presented and taught today. Um, it's not as it's, it's, it's people are looking for a quick, something quick. They go to class two or three times a week. They practice for an hour and they want a certificate. Then they want this and they want, you can't do that with, uh, to, to, with, especially with a more, uh, technically demanding style, but you really can't do that with, with almost any martial art. It's something that you need to grind away at for very long periods every single day and the key point is that in those really important foundational periods which are long they're not a short one month or something we're talking about a few the foundational period would be probably three years it's really important that you have a teacher who's correcting every single technical aspect all the time so in this in today's uh, environment people rarely have this method or a and this discipline to to practice so with the more complicated and and refined a style is it's going to be harder to to attain anything out of it in 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 the way that people are doing it today i mean i can teach you i can teach you the five elements linking form in 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 two hours with no i can teach you the movements it's not really going to be shingy but but that's the way that's the way people are, are approaching the art today they think that that martial arts is a collection of forms or techniques. No, it's a develop. It's it's the techniques and the forms are skills to develop something, and right. the development of that su- that something that something is the martial arts. That that that's the real thing there. Mm-hmm. It's not all the other stuff. So makes sense. Um, it kind of reminds me when I was doing Xingyi, I was learning a lot of the linking forms, but I don't feel like I was actually doing Xingyi. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You're going through the motions. That was it. I had no idea what the application was, how to generate power, not a thing. I was just literally going through the motions. It, yeah, it was yeah. cool because I like Kung Fu, I like martial arts, but I wasn't getting anything you know, out of it. Um, yeah. Okay, so I wanted to go into the techniques of, of those two arts, you're, the, the two arts you're studying. Do you do anything else, by the way, besides Xingyi and Bagua? Yeah, I've done Jiu-Jitsu for about four years as well. Brazilian. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. How far did you get in that? Or are you? Or well, I still practice. I still practice. So okay, that's I'm awesome. still I'm st- I'm still going through that. But yeah, that is awesome. And that's an story too. I I initially started going to do that because I I wanted some uh, uh, non-compliant people uh, that uh, are well, they're not people that I would be so worried about uh, injuring. <laughs> I know that sounds terrible, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, just to go and uh, try some of uh, my current, you know, methods on. And uh, what happened was, because it was somebody that introduced me to the teacher, and I just started playing with them. What happened was, through my exposure to them, I realized how much depth there is to what they do on the floor. And that's something that I knew nothing about. You know, mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, we have grappling, takedown, and uh, limited work 
which is usually finishing somebody on the floor, but nothing that goes into what happens if I'm on the floor or in such a position and uh, how can it be used in my advantage or to my advantage or against me. And I thought, okay, well, this is something worthy of further, further, um, you know, investigation and learning. And it, it is, it's, it's, it is a totally different world on the floor. So it's not contradictory, but rather complementary to what what I do as with my Xingyi and Bagua, I must say. Right. I would say grappling is complementary to any stand-up or striking art, for sure. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So, so you kind of went in with the intention of trying to uh, use your the body mechanics and I guess the rooting or whatnot that you learned in your uh, Xingyi and Bagua, right? Right. Were you able right. to apply any of that in any of the positions that you start in when it comes to like randori or, or rolling in, in Brazilian? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. And I think some of the guys there were slightly surprised as well, just from body movement, mechanics, etc. So, I mean, of course, uh, you, you're still going to make uh, mistakes on the floor uh, because mm-hmm. you're doing the wrong things but body mechanics movement motion and some of the the takedowns and and uh locks that we use in bagua i, I mean i successfully did use it um so yeah it was fun that is awesome the did Xingyi and bagua and the mechanics from that and the, the stances and movement did that help prepare you to for takedown defense oh yeah totally they had a tough time taking me down that is awesome that is awesome and you made it. You made it a point not to use the previous judo training. Just use your shingi and bagua, right? When you first. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to say that I couldn't use something that is uh, trained internally, whether I used it or not. I mean, you know, like I said, you, we develop skills through our styles that we right. practice, and those skills, when you sweep the floor, they come out too. So you never know what you're using when you're using. <laughs> right. So That's I true. can't say that I didn't want to use something or the other because the the pudding. Whether you put sugar, cocoa, all of the stuff, the pudding is there. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's all there. I can't just say I'm not going to use the sugar. It's just there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Makes sense. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the techniques of Xingyi, if you don't mind. Um, Sure. Okay, so people have told me before, um, I I don't argue with people, whether it's in real life. I, I try to avoid that, you know, especially if I don't know much about it or my podcast, you know, whether I agree or disagree. I have guests on to, to celebrate their life and their martial arts training. That's the goal of this podcast. Uh, okay. But people have told me before, a couple in particular, that uh, Santisha uh, is not a fighting stance, which is weird mm-hmm. to me. Because when I look at Santisha, it reminds me of Muay Thai. And I know I might sound weird, but bear with me. The the weight on the rear leg, uh, a lighter lead leg, and being ready to attack. Okay? I, 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 to me, Santisha appears to be a fighting stance. You doing Xing Yi Chuan for so long. Can you confirm or deny whether or not it's a fighting stance? So uh, let's first take a look at uh, a few aspects of Santisha. Santisha at its foundational uh, level is a method to understand and develop the key requirements of Xing Yichuan. Okay. All right. So the key requirements of Xing Yichuan in terms of waiting, 
like where your weight is, mm-hmm. your structural alignment, the things like uh, pressing the head up, rounding the shoulders, sinking the sh- uh, rounding the back and the chest rather, sinking the shoulders and the elbows, dropping the waist, not uh, rolling the having a, a posterior or anterior tilt, and uh, actually connecting with the ground. So at a basic level. That is what Xing Yi Chuan is going to teach you, structural alignment and basic requirements. Okay, but, um, and then of course it develops your leg strength because, you know, you're standing. But uh, when we talk about a fighting stance, there is no such thing as a static fighting stance. So to say that Santi sure just standing there because just standing there is, uh, is not a fighting stance. Uh, you could say that, you could say that, but when you move, you're supposed to move while maintaining all those things that you have developed and are required in Santisha. So all those connections, it's just a matter of learning how to move that structure. And I'll, 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 ex- I'll tell people to often look at, uh, well, go watch Choke. Uh, if you watch that old documentary with Hicks and Gracie, but you don't even have to watch that. You can watch some of his older fights and you can watch some of the older Valetudo fights, but uh, you'll see that the method of movement, because look, when we go from Santi Sher, then we start to, we immediately should start working on footwork as the next step. So if you look at guys like Hickson, when he was fighting uh, Vale Tudo or um, even uh, in Japan in, in other events, whatever, he stands in a very similar way, back weighted, um, at a slightly oblique angle, and he edges forward by moving his front foot and then his back foot, and then his front foot and then his back foot. And he edges his way in like that. Well, that's basically Shinyi's method. So that's what you're doing there. The placement of the hands. Well, like I said, Shanti uh, is static. Uh, the, 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 the key about Shinyi is that it's not static. You're moving. Mm-hmm. So the placement of the top hand and the lower hand are just initial starting points. They will move from there. They don't have to stay there. But the general requirements of what is going on between force, between your hands, the structural alignment, your stance and the way you step, that won't change a whole lot, even when you go into combat. Okay, okay. So just being static and not moving is not a fighting stance, but using those concepts and principles in motion would, and it would probably resemble Santisha, but in motion. Would you say that? Yeah. But uh, your hands would do what is needed. Right. Uh, they probably have a slightly more closed uh, or higher. Uh, look, your lower hand that's on, that's jacked down onto your dantian in Santisha would probably raise slightly. Right. So there's no gap between your upper arm and your lower arm. Mm-hmm. But that happens in motion in any case. So, yeah. Okay. And what about Bagua? Uh, are you, and again, forgive my ignorance, but are people, if they're fighting with Bagra, are they expected to be walking in a circle, using lateral movement like that, cross-stepping around their opponent, you know? Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard so many people ask that and like decide that when they're going to fight with Bagra, they're going to walk and start doing circle walking with their opponent. But no, circle walking is a training technique. Uh, it's a training method, like doing, uh, like doing Santi Shuri is as well. Right. Um, but uh, but in in Xin Yichuan, it's called Zhan Zhuang. So uh, that would be standing post, and in Bagua, walking the circle is called Huo Zhuang, or moving or uh, post standing. So 
the the circle walking is actually a training method. It's not be how you approach combat, right? It's like doing push-ups. Boxers doing push-ups, they don't get onto all fours and do push-ups in a fight. So um, if you look at the progression of Bagua's training, I mean, and I'll speak more specifically about Liang style, which is the style that I do. We do, we start off with Ding Shi Bajang, which are the eight static palms, but the palms are static. You're walking in a circle. You're still doing Tang Ni Pu. So you're practicing footwork in a circle while doing what we do in Santi Shou with the upper body, but there's eight different postures trying to um, develop the correct structure, connection, angling, etc., with the upper body. So that's the, 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 the first thing. Then you'll start to do Lao Bajang, which is the eight mother palms, which are slightly more involved. They're constantly, but they're also done in a circle. Um, but as you progress through the system, you start to eventually learn what we call Liu Shi Sishou, which is the 64 hands of Liu De Quan and their straight line. And Liu De Quan created this because what he was trying to do was take the essence of the 64, uh, sorry, the essence of the, of the Lian Huan Zhang content and the other empty hand content, put it into straight line for uh, direct combat use. So what we consider the 64 hands is the application of Bagua, and it's done in straight lines. So uh, I, people that say you have to walk in a circle or you should be walking in a circle to fight, they're wrong. Like I said earlier, we do these things to develop skills. So the lively footwork, uh, the ability to turn and angle, that's what the circle walking is teaching you. You're just supposed to use those skills as needed in combat. There's no set way that you should do. And I would say that if you start off walking in a circle, you'll probably get into a hell of a lot of trouble with your opponent. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you walk right into a hook or a, or a kick. Well, everything. Yeah. You know? Um, is it, do you think it helps develop lateral movement while teaching that kind of rooting instructor structure, the circle walking? Okay, so I would say the circle walking has a few key points. What we talk about, and if you look at classical writings, it says, Bai Kou Bu forms the circle. So Bai Bu is uh, toe outstep and Kou Bu is toe instep. And that's exactly what it is. If you walk in a straight line with your toes going forward, that's, that's how you walk straight. The second I start turning my toes in and out, like on one side, that circles, that straight line starts to curve. So the point of this is to learn how to use bai kou bu. Um, kou and bai bu are used to also trap your opponent's feet, but also to change your angling and direction. So it's multifaceted training. Uh, uh, a lot of the time when you use kou bu, it's to trap up your opponent's legs. It's not to walk around him, but also to trap up and to lock his legs, both both by and kobu, but also to angle and flank. So that's the key about uh, about Bagua is good movement. Um, the circle walking also has a, a very important point that we use tangni or um, mud wading, you know, that uh, which is likened to just adding friction to your stepping. Okay, that's mm -hmm. not to be used like that. That's just to develop or to add resistance to your your training to strengthen your legs more than what would be done if you did natural stepping. Natural stepping would be without the friction. So circle walking uh, from a from the leg point of view has this value, and it also gets you to be very lively, right? Good lively movement. Right. The upper body. 
the upper body is another key point though because it's got to have a constant twist the constant twisting with the muscles tensed and twisted develops your core so that's why you do this is to develop core strength of twisting and we know that a lot of uh, high level martial arts don't merely use the limbs to to attack or to to do motions with but the core so bagua is trying to develop this on a circle through its circle walking to focus on these key points they're not there to be used as a combat method they're there to develop combat abilities okay okay so me thinking it's like lateral movement is not correct no that is correct because the footwork is being developed too okay, okay. so like i said you're learning how to flank an angle okay. so that that's part of the the training okay but i guess like i said to, go ahead i'm sorry a circle at least. you're not going to walk in that circle during uh, a fight you might take two steps in one direction and change direction you know what i mean as needed right I guess the misconception is is people thinking you have to be circle walking if you're fighting with Bagua, right? Right, right. Then that's wrong. Yeah, and that's probably because of movies and whatnot. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, also because I think people are in the mindset of styles, mm-hmm. fighting with styles. No, no, people fight, not styles. Right. Uh, you develop your fighting ability through your training method, which are usually derived from some styles. But mm-hmm. people fight, not styles. Okay, so kind of, I, I want to know, what, what do you think, Byron? Can Xingyi or Bagua have a formalized sparring program? Because, like, what I mean is this, is that, like, when you see uh, traditional karate guys spar, you can cl- clearly see they're doing traditional karate. And even when mm-hmm. they cross over into mixed martial arts, you can still see they're doing karate. Um, I, what I don't want is people to say they're doing Taiji or... Bagua or Shingi, and when they start sparring, it looks like kickboxing or Sanda, you know, because I think that's a different thing. Um, and one thing I noticed in karate is that when you spar, because uh, I've been doing Shotokan for a number of years now, you have to stay within the confines of that style when you do your Kumite, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, it is restrictive, I admit that, but it still helps maintain the integrity and flavor of the art, you know? without yeah. getting sloppy and whatnot. So I think you see where I'm going with this. Does Xingyi or Bagua yeah, need a program like that or other traditional Chinese Kung Fu styles, like a, a, a system like that, to have like authentic Kung Fu when they're sparring and whatnot? Or okay. what, what does it need? Okay, so sparring is needed if you want to actually bridge the gap between uh, being able to develop the skills and being able to use them. Mm-hmm. So sparring in its multitude of forms whether it's controlled limited etc uh, you have to do it Shingi goes in in the fo- following progression we go from set techniques we do some combination of uh, some forms and then we have set partner forms and then we do have something called sanda but sanda is not defined it just means free fighting that's mm-hmm. actually what the term means. Right. Uh, well, we call it sancho, san rather. Mm-hmm. Or just, uh, that literally means sparring. So, um, I would say all martial arts should practice this if they want to if they wanna be able to uh, bridge that gap and start to be able to take form into function. Okay, that's just, that's, that's the blanket statement I'd like to start with. 
The second point is those methods of sparring that you talk about in karate, they have kumite, in judo they have randori, they are pieces of a whole, which is called fighting, okay? They're not the whole thing. So uh, judo has its sparring, um, well, practice, which is focused on certain things within judo and certain things within martial arts as a whole. It's not everything, right? Right. Judo, if you look at Kodokan Judo, and I would suggest you buy Jigoro Kano's book called Kodokan Judo because he lays out the curriculum from when he wrote it way back when quite clearly. You'll see that there are forms in Judo. There is uh, uh, striking. There is even some weapon defense. It's all within the curriculum. But their sparring or their fighting uh, practice is uh, focused on a specific thing. Karate is the same thing. Their kumite uh, practice is focused on trying to create a format where you can practice specific things that are considered key points of karate training. Not everything, just key points. Right. So any martial art can do this. It doesn't necessarily have to become a competitive event, but you just put some boundaries up into your sparring practice and uh, let people have at it within those um, within those confines, right? Uh, what most people don't want to admit today is that the format of MMA is yet another combat discipline within the family of combat disciplines. And if you had to put them in a table and categorize them, you could have wrestling there, you could have Taiji's toy show there, you could have jujitsu there, you could have judo's randori there, you could have karate kumite, you could have boxing. And they should, if you looked at them clearly, you could you could formalize, well, uh, you could uh, tabulate them under different categories, striking with the hands only, boxing. Uh, wrestling, on the wrestling side, you could have judo, you could have sumo, you could have uh, uh, you could have no-gi submission wrestling, right? Mm-hmm. And their variant would simply be the confines, judo, uh, wrestling and takedown with some floor submissions in a jacket. Submission wrestling, same thing, no jacket. Uh, sumo, uh, just simply uh, standing on the feet, no jacket, nothing to do on the floor, etc., etc., etc. Right? But if you go once, if you look up above that, this, the format that is more free that overlaps with most of these would be something that is called MMA, and that's basically what the original idea was—a format where different styles could find a a place to to be able to use their skills. So uh, a Thai boxer could come in with his clinch and his kneeing and his elbowing. Knees and elbows are allowed, right? Whereas in, in, in uh, sanda or, or kickboxing, you can't you really use knees and elbows. So, uh, and I'm talking about the, the formalized versions of these sports. So when you're looking at a format, MMA is something that you should be able to apply at least most of your your skills and abilities that you practice in your martial art in. Okay, it has become crystallized because rules will start to, like I said, will start to affect the way people practice. But in general, you should look at it like that. So with Xingyi, I would say to teachers or to people out there that they want, if they want to bridge that gap, 
you don't need to have a rule set that makes everybody happy. It's within your school. It's for training purposes. Sparring is a training purpose. It's to develop something and to bridge a gap. Get some gear, put some gloves on, have some agreed upon uh, terms uh, that you will practice within, and go at it. If you want to go into competition, well, then you'll have to adapt to what is out there. And if you want to be more free, go into MMA if you feel that this is necessary. And uh, you should be able to adapt and uh, utilize your skills there. So um, we're talking about two different things now. You know what I mean? You're talking about how uh, how a martial arts person should develop his skills within the confines of his own school and uh, if he wants to go outside and actually compete. These are, these are connected, but they're not the same thing. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I get what you're saying. I, I think you explained it really well. Um, so it, it's just a matter of kind of, do you think face has a bit to do with it too? People don't want to spar right now and maybe a lot of the Chinese systems because it might not look as good as when you're not sparring or you might lose. Is that the case you think, or could that be a problem? Well, there's a lot to it. I mean, that's such a tough, a tough thing to look at in today's context and society because Chinese martial arts within China, Chinese martial arts outside of China, uh, societies that they developed in guru culture where people are looking up to their teacher like untouchable gurus, all of this, and it's not only Chinese martial arts that's had this problem, it's lots of martial arts that has led to the point that uh, uh, effective uh, practice and combat training has been relegated to the side. Uh, people have started living in their own little bubbles. Uh, there's the whole financial side of it, too, because the second you're starting to earn money out of it, that if you happen to lose face in terms of your combat ability and get shown up there, then that might threaten your income. So all of these things have to do with it. But, uh, you know, I, I would say, once again, this is not something that's not unsalvageable. It's very much salvageable. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Look, we do martial arts for ourselves, and it's multifaceted, right? Um, right. I kind of said this before, probably in another podcast, but classical or traditional martial arts, but in, and this probably applies to some, in some degree to sport martial arts too, most of these points that I'm going to put. There's combat ability that you're developing. There's the social aspect. I mean, a lot of people go to training because it's where they socialize, and, and the links and the friendships they make in training are strong at times stronger in some cases than their family. So there's the social aspect. They go to it out of, out of a social interaction uh, benefit. There's cultural. So when we're talking about traditional classical martial arts, they either have a connection to that culture or they're learning parts of that culture. And that's interesting. There's nothing wrong with that. And that also includes uh, the weapons point of it because weapons... I mean, half of the weapons we do in Chinese martial arts are impractical in today's day and age, but why should we throw them away? There's a cultural legacy there, um, and, and it's interesting, and it's fun, and uh, that doesn't mean that we should do them without uh, the, the requirements uh, that uh, they were intended for the correct way. Blanket statement right here that people need to pay attention to. Simply because uh, you're not going to use a broadsword, it doesn't mean you can do whatever the hell you want to with a broadsword. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is people practice those things because there's a cultural element to it. They should still practice them correctly. That's, now I've gone off on a tangent, but that's, that's the other thing. There's a spiritual side to it, all martial arts, and then say any sport done to a, a level where you connect your mind, body, and your, and your 
soul to it at, at, a, at a deep and full level has a spiritual side to it. It could even be basketball or running. So it's not just martial arts. There's a development of spirit, perseverance, tenacity, putting yourself through hell. That is all good for your spirit and your character. So there's that side of it too. So uh, there's, there's and, and then of course, finally, entertainment. You do it because you're just having fun. You're enjoying it. So um, we can't lose sight of all of these things, but we should also not lose sight of any one of them and realize that there's a way to do it as a whole, uh, remembering the key tenets of what we're doing. They are martial arts. Practice them correctly. Whether you want to fight or not is a different story, but you should practice correctly and practice it as a whole, right? right. So that that. That, I would say, is a really important point in today's society. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people confuse the fact, like, sparring doesn't always mean you want to compete, you know? It, you could just yeah. spar because I think it's, it's, it's necessary, it's very important, but it doesn't mean you have to be a competitor, you know? With, no, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Different strokes for different folks, exactly. different levels for different people. Mm -hmm. But I would say that they should be willing to at least engage in some form of non-cooperative training to bridge the gap between form and function. Right. And if you're doing martial arts and you never want to make contact with another person, you might just want to step back and ask yourself why you're doing it in the first place and are your motives uh, uh, true to yourself or maybe you slightly confused. So right. it doesn't mean you have to go out and compete. It doesn't mean you have to go full out and beat the shit out of your opponents or your classmates it just means that you shouldn't be uh, avoiding it in totality right okay so do you obviously I'm, i mean judging from our conversation you probably have some form of sparring you partake in shingi and bagua right byron yeah 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 i mean well we've got uh, headgear we've got gloves and sometimes my my my, my martial brothers and i will just put them on and have fun you know mm -hmm. Um, it is fun. And we do it with weapons too, by the way. We have uh, sparring weapons too that we, um, depending on the season, because season has a, a lot of influence on what you practice, we practice outside. Depending on the season, we'll do different different things at different times. Right. Okay. Um, when you're sparring, do you try to use uh, your shingi and bagua, like try to apply the techniques you've learned and whatnot, or just... Yeah. Do you take yeah 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 okay yeah for sure that is so what i would suggest to people as a method of starting this and this is something that i still do today arrange it arrange with whoever whether it's one of your martial brothers or if it's in your class to get together and do this in a very what's the word relaxed uh environment uh use some gear because it's safer that way uh, just uh, especially in the beginning stages and what I personally do is at different times I will focus on specific things like uh, today I will try to focus on using horse horse tactics and methods you know and that's mm. what I'll try to look for and use the whole time other times I won't but it's good to have different focus on uh, on different days and you can find yourself and see different things and develop them we should use it as another training tool if you know what I mean Right, right. Um, like, let's say you're sparring someone in Shingi and, like, your partner starts throwing spinning hook kicks and stuff like that. Would Yeah. Is that something you're okay with or, like... like? Oh, he can do whatever he wants to. Okay. That's up to him. 
Okay. I can only speak for myself, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. Okay. Does Xing Yi and Bagua have those high spinning kicks like you see the wushu performers do? Or is that just wushu, sport wushu stuff? Uh, Xing Yi has far fewer leg techniques. So, uh, and they're limited to, in terms of in general, uh, limited to being used waist height and below. Uh, very rarely does it kick higher. There's probably only three or four kicks, but there's a lot of uh, stomping on the feet, actually, which people don't see often, but uh, stomping on the knee and stomping on the feet. But Bagua has one or two higher kicks. Uh, but uh, once again, it's, uh, it's uh, very rare that they kick over the waist extensively. A lot of the footwork is trapping, kicking, sweeping uh, mm. at, uh, from the waist below. Okay. So not what you see. And there's uh, basically no, none of those jumping kicks. So, I mean, uh, Xingyi might have uh, like uh, one of our stomping kicks might be uh, combined with a jump or a tantue, like a spring kick to the groin might be combined with a hop like in monkey and other things, but uh, um, not, not crazy jumping, kicking over the head, things like that. No, not really. No jump spinning hook kicks or jump 360 round kicks, something like that, right? No, the, the style that features the most intricate and uh, extensive legs of the, the use of the legs in the north would probably be Chojiao. Uh, and uh, my teacher did do Chojiao under Wu Lo for a, a period of time that he just wanted to extend on, expand on his uh, uh, kicking uh, repertoire. So, um, but yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, but it's again, it's it's a lot of practically practical based uh, methods of kicking, not so much flying. Uh, it's it, there are higher kicks, but not so much flying, if you know what I mean. Right. Well, because uh, I, I I know like the ass kicks, spinning hook kicks, and the high various roundhouse kicks and stuff like that is very much a Korean like taekwondo and karate thing. Does do yeah. any kung fu styles have a like a large emphasis on the, those, like the style you just mentioned, does it emphasize it as much as Taekwondo and Karate do, or that's not Not really... as much, but but I don't know if you know that even in Karate, like the, uh, the higher round kick wasn't really there in Okinawan Karate. Yeah, it's you know very that. much a Japanese Karate type thing. Yeah, and who knows if it came from uh, seeing Thai methods, because that is a staple of Thai, thai methods, is the, the high roundhouse kick. Yeah, yeah, so, I, I wondered that as well. And, uh, and I think maybe even a lot of Americans and Westerners that started doing karate started kicking higher. I wonder if, the, wonder if that had a, an influence as well. Could I think, be. I think Bill Wallace, could Bill be. Superfoot could Wallace, be. was talking about that. He just started kicking high, and he said not many people were. So, right, right. That's interesting. Okay. And it's good. Like any skill, if you're able to use it and train it in a logical way, it's it's useful. It's good. And the ties, for example, were, well, I mean, they're, the Thai roundhouse kick is renowned for a very long time. It's not something new. Right. Okay, so I've asked other guests this. I want to get your take on it. Why hasn't traditional kung fu made an impact in mixed martial arts yet? Um we see karate, not a lot, and it took a while yeah. before we start seeing karate. Um, but we do see it, and I think the only reason we do is because they have some kind of kumite point fighting pro, uh, program, you know, format. Yeah. 
And yeah. it did give like guys like Machida, Stephen Thompson, uh, you know, uh, Justin Scoggins. There's a few of them, like really unique like stance and movement. Um, yeah. Why isn't Kung Fu taking that next step? So, I would say that you've kind of already answered that question, and that's because karate already has a well-developed competitive format. So, the competitive format exists already for quite a while within karate, and people had that avenue to go and start competing. So, uh, not just training, so I'm not just saying doing sparring training in your school, but to actually start doing competition. So competition against other, other schools and competition against other countries maybe even. Right. That would be step one. So that, that opens up that doorway to then going bigger and bigger. And the next logical step would go to MMA. I mean, fame, prestige, uh, variety, if you want to test yourself, etc. That's a route that a lot of people will go. Chinese martial arts hasn't really got much of a competitive format apart from Sanda. Mm-hmm. Sanda is not as old or as well-developed as uh, Kumite. When I say well-developed, I mean widespread, not uh, in terms of its style itself. And uh, uh, But we are seeing a lot more come out. I don't know if you've noticed there's uh, quite a few guys from Dagestan that have entered into the UFC uh, and they've started doing, uh, they're Sanda fighters. Now, okay, we could have a whole debate about is Sanda Chinese uh, Kung Fu on its own? But the point is that that is the competitive format. So like I said about karate's competitive format, logically and naturally uh, producing people that will go into MMA, Sanda would be that avenue in Chinese martial arts because that is the competitive format that exists. You know, once again, very small and not as widely developed, but it's there. So now we're seeing a lot of guys come out of Sanda and uh, and go into the UFC even. There's a, a very famous Russian fighter. His name is Muslim Salihov, who's, uh, who's our Sanda king for many years. He's in fact the only non-Chinese Sanda king. He's, uh, he came into China and beat all of their... Uh, uh, champion in their weight divisions in one night, so it was a cross weight division. So he's he's a multi multiple time world uh, Sanda champion, and he's known in the sport as the best that there ever was uh, so far um, in in Sanda. And he's in the UFC now. I mean, he's uh, no, he's, he's just had a couple of fights. Yeah, he's yep. a, he's amazing. I know exactly who that is, and I know of the Dagestani fighters too that come from a Sanda background. But again, yeah. I don't mean to be combative or argumentative, but I would kind of be letting you off the hook if I didn't press you a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, no, go ahead. But to most people, we would not consider that traditional kung fu, and we can get into the argument about Correct. what it is, what is not, you know. But if we're just being simple and direct, no BS. If I'm putting a gun to your head, why isn't there Shingi, Bagua, Taiji, where it's obvious it's those arts? Like, we can see, again, I hate to always compare, we can see that Machida's doing Shotokan. We can see that Stephen yeah. Thompson's doing American Kempo Karate. You know, we can see Mako Venipage yeah, doing yeah. something like Stephen Thompson, that westernized version of point-fighting karate. Why not yeah. Kung Fu? Well, exactly. I mean, part of the problem was, one, there's no competitive avenue, but the other problem is within the the Chinese martial arts themselves, and we've kind of discussed it, that a lot of them actually don't do any combat training. A lot of them have thrown that away. A lot of them are focused on uh, other parts of training. A lot of them are not competent teachers, and uh, that's also why there's no combat training. So there's... uh, 
within a lot of the styles themselves, there's not much, well, I'd hate to say it, skill. And two, they don't actually do any combat training. So mm. that's unfortunately the unfortunate truth that we're going to have to admit that is a problem. And uh, not to say that everyone has that problem, but it is a major problem within Chinese martial arts. Right. It's because when you look at kung fu styles, you could like, you could. It, it looks like it should be effective, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you look at Wing Chun. In theory, you would think that'd be very effective, but it fails miserably. Like every time you've seen it, almost not every time, but mostly when you see it fight anyone, you know. Right. Um, right. But it, it's like you can see people use aspects of Wing Chun all the time, you know. Uh, well, that's it. But uh, they're doing it unconsciously, you know. They don't have any formal training. There's a few Tony Ferguson. You know who Tony Ferguson is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. trained. It seems like he's trained a lot in Wing Chun, and he's used it very effectively. Yes. Yeah. But yes. outside of that, like, there's not really much of it. It just is. So it's just what you said. It's just like that disconnect with that formal kind of sparring program and that's basically all that it is you know well that's part of it but there's also a, a sad reality within not just all martial arts but it's a big problem within chinese martial arts that they've stigmatized anything to do with competitive fighting like a lot of the teachers seem to be threatened by it that they have to sit and stigmatize it and uh, talk bad about it oh this is not good for your go, don't compete it's bad for your martial arts or uh mma it's it's the wrong thing and it's not real and and don't even think about it so there's a stigma for people not even wanting to get that first step into it also mm-hmm. and uh, that's part of the problem too and what you said too is really important we're not going to be able to use 110 percent of our like methods as is verbatim within these competitive formats, but you'll have to take certain aspects and use those as they fit into that uh, format, right? Right. And that can be done, but I don't see many people doing that. Like you said, Tony Ferguson has done it. People can do it. And it's the same with Machida. He's taken aspects of his karate background and implemented them into into MMA. And, and we'd be lying to ourselves if we said that he also he didn't also start learning grappling. Because that's an aspect that was underdeveloped in his in his style. Right. Again, I'm not I'm not saying that it's better or worse. I'm saying that's the reality of an open format competitive uh, martial art event. That the reality is people are going to grapple with you. Wrestlers are going to grab you and slam you into the floor. And if you are very much lacking over there, you're going to lose. So. The martial artist is the logical person who works on his weaknesses, right? Right, right. So, well, I mean, even strikers, anyone's going to grapple with you. That's just, you, you hit someone, right. they get upset, people just grapple. It's like, you almost the fight against your natural instinct to not grapple when you think about it. So Right, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. Even animals grapple. Exactly. Even animals grapple. It's in the Bible, so. grappling. So, it's it's the <laughs> oldest form, probably, I would say. Um, now, toy uh, uh, show or push hands, okay? Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. I, did. Uh, can I can I can I take a one minute uh, bathroom break? Go for it. Go for it. All right, all right. I'll be back in a minute. Okay, I'm back. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Welcome back. Okay. 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 So. Sorry about that. Drank no. a lot of water this morning. No, no, no. Please, please. And if you ever, you know, you got to go, just uh, you could uh, text me through WeChat and tell me when you, you the, the clock's ticking, okay? Um, All right. No problem. Okay. So, Toy Show. Push hands. Yeah. 
Um, I can theoretically see the benefit of it. You know, sensitivity drills, control, rooting, right? Uh, why? Maybe because I'm ignorant. I'm, I don't know enough about internal martial arts to, to see that maybe I'm missing something. You know, like a lot of people can look at jujitsu and they don't know what the hell they're looking at, right? And they complain about it. Right, right, right. We've heard that. And right. that's irritating for anyone that's a, you know, knows anything about grappling. That The, the level of skill in, in BJJ and judo is insane. Catch wrestling, all that. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. am I looking at it because and not thinking it looks like, to me it looks like bad judo. And I talked to Ken Gullett about this. I want to talk to you about it. When I look at Toy Show, okay. I look at the competitions. To me, it looks like really bad judo. And they're using a lot of strength, okay. and they're trying to be explosive. To me, it doesn't resemble anything like the Shingy or Taiji push hands at all. The Toy Show competitions. Right. Am I seeing it wrong, or is it just kind of evolved that way? Like, like it's, it's lost its traditional way? What's going on here? Okay, so let's first just clarify. You're talking about like uh, when you talk about Toy Show, you've seen the moving step kind of competitive Toy Show, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so th this is one of the things. Like Toy Show as a traditional practice was a training tool. And it's probably a, uh, a beginning level training tool. Mm -hmm. So to start understanding, uh, I mean, if we look at it on the big picture, the set, there's two types, you know, in, in, in traditional practices. There's set toy show techniques, which are kind of cooperative. Everybody knows what's going on. And then you'd probably say that there would be some free free version of that too. The set ones, you could see is starting to teach you entry, sensitivity, as you said, but it's hand fighting in reality. Mm -hmm. So it's it's the initial part of almost any any grappling slash wrestling slash, I would say even any combat uh, sport that goes directly to the clinch phase. Right. Um, it's the hand fighting, right? Right. They do grip fighting in judo because they've got good jackets on, depending on the rules, etc. So at a fundamental level, that's what it was teaching you, hand fighting and entries, and then um, from a later stage, how to finish from there with a takedown or some, some sort of a, a finishing uh, technique. The, the problem is when it became a sport is that... Uh, uh, or a competitive event is that you have to have a set set of rules and whatever's going to happen within that set of rules is going to happen and i would agree with you in that it just judo is uh and even even nogi nogi submission wrestling when they start on the feet is superior um it is unfortunately we, we have to just admit what it is but if you take toy show as a training tool out of the competitive format it is it has its benefits so, so, so that's the thing. And what did happen, and you're right, is that a lot of guys uh, ended up just uh, just trying to muscle the way through it. But isn't that what combat's about? I mean, that's the thing, though. You're gonna have people that are gonna muscle their way through, and if you can't do anything about it, you are going to lose. This is this is the 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 sad reality that people need to realize. There's a there's a Chinese saying. That means you can have a hundred techniques, a hundred abilities, or a hundred skills and, and uh, tricks, and a hundred abilities, but without strength, it's all fruitless, it's all worthless. So 
that's the na- that is the nature of combat. You've got two sides of one coin. You've got skill on the one side, and you've got power on the other side. You need both. Mm-hmm. A guy with high power and low skill might beat a guy with uh, low power and high skill, or he might lose to it. But a guy with high power and high skill has a really good chance at beating most people. That's right. just the reality of it. And you know, it's funny because they started trying to, the, the, the Chinese Wushu Association here in China started trying to make a formal Taiji Tuisho competition in the last few years. And they called me to come and watch one of their national events in Tianjin, I think it was four years ago. And uh, they've even got a special platform and rules and judges, and they were just trying to develop it there. And uh, as I was watching, they started off, and the two athletes, or the two competitors rather, had to start off by doing a set partner form. Now listen to what I've just said. It's a combat event, and what they had them do was get up on stage and basically do a toy show dance that they both have it's a set one that everyone does that they've uh, you know it's choreographed and, and, and they go through it and I was looking at this and I asked the guy what's this for are they getting scored on this and he said yes I said why are they getting scored on this it's a combat event he said uh, to see if their skill is good I said if their skill is good they'll win the fight yeah it's so confusing and the guy said uh, 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 uh. I said why are, you, why are you making people do this just let them fight and he looked at me, he's like, that's to make sure that we don't get judo people coming in here and beating everyone. And I looked at him, I said, if judo is beating you, there's something wrong with your taiji. Right. And they quickly changed. These are unfortunate, uh, this is unfortunately my character, but it's the unfortunate questions that they're not used to. And uh, they're not going to, they usually don't get asked. But this is the mentality, unfortunately. So... People, like I said earlier, need to understand combat is combat. All you can do is put in confines and restrictions. And from there, it's no longer going to... I don't want to say it's Tai Chi because the person there is just a person fighting. He's just fighting within those confines of the rules. That's it. So, fucking A, let judo people come in. Maybe you can learn something from them. And maybe they can learn something from you too. So, that, that, that's, that's how it should be. But... Um, I think, and this is again coming back to one of your earlier questions, combat sports have uh, developed over the last, I would say, 30 years to such a, a large degree that we're starting to see, like you've just seen, overlaps between them. And we're starting to realize, okay, you've got something called martial arts. When they're applied, it's just martial arts. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at, you've looked at good high-level judo and you look at poor Twaisho, you're like, okay, well, judo is superior. Well, you're seeing an overlap there. That's what you're seeing, right? Right. When you're looking at uh, high-level kickboxing compared to poor Muay Thai or vice versa, you're going to say, well, this one's better than that one. But you're seeing overlaps there. And what happened 30 years ago was this thing called the UFC started, which really is an old idea, but it's born again, in which we say, all of you people can overlap here. That's it. So I think there isn't going to be some new format that's going to come out and revolutionize any, everything in terms, because the, the UFC, as, as far as it is restricted in its own rules, is the most open out of all these combat. The only thing that could be more open would be illegal, underground, bare-knuckle, no-holds-barred fights. That's never going to become mainstream. Right. 
it's probably it's probably the closest thing to uh, a real fight, but it's never going to become mainstream. It's not going to be something I would suggest people to go and voluntarily put themselves through all the time either. So well, you got to work with what you got. Mm-hmm. Is the uh, the push hands and Xing Yi trend similar to the push hands in other internal arts? There's no push hands in Xing Yi trend, and people that have put it there have added it themselves. Okay. Xing Yi's not a pushing, pushing or a grappling uh, art. It's a striking art. Okay, so when I did that, that was just whatever lineage I was in added that in, and that's not. Yeah, and it's probably a sensitivity drill, but it's it's not in line with Xing Yi's methods. Okay, okay. What about Bagua? Bagua, we don't have a pushing. Pushing hands is you as a Taisho is a Tai Chi is a Tai Chi uh, practice, and Bagua too is uh, depending on which. Because like I said, you've got uh, Yin style Bagua, you've got Chen style Bagua, you've got mine, which is Liang, which is a combination of Chen Chen style and Yin style. Yin style focuses on. Uh, its own tactics and methods and content, which is slightly different to Chung style, which focuses more on throwing and takedowns. Uh, Yin uh, Liang style combines them both, so you're not going to find one training method that will fit for all of these methods. We have partner training exercises, which we call Dan Cao Basha or Shuang Cao Basha, which you do with a partner, which are eight. Uh, practices w- which focus on differing things, including striking, grip breaking, and takedowns, joint locking, etc. We've got partner uh, uh, NAFA, which is uh, China training drills, etc. Uh, but we don't really have something called Tuisho, so no, mm-hmm. it doesn't really exist in in Bagua either, because Tuisho is more in line with Xing Yi, uh, Taiji's methods and and combat approaches. Okay. Not okay. not really. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, do you still encounter this, Byron? Uh, I did. I lived in China seven years. Um, okay. And when I was there, I encountered it a few times. And I, I kind of just chalk it up to ignorance. You know, when people don't know, they don't know. And that people say stuff out of yeah. ignorance all the time. I, I've said stuff out of ignorance in this conversation with you about push hands and Xing Yichuan. Um, nah. The whole too deadly for MMA thing. I hear that yeah. a lot in the Kung Fu community. I heard it when I was in China from Kung Fu people. Um, yeah. is, is that still an issue? I mean, I've only been gone for two years, so it probably is still a thing. Um, but yeah. shockingly, it's, it's a thing over here in America, and America is where the whole MMA boom started, you know? Yeah. So I, it, it's just it's, it's weird. Do you still deal with that when communicating with your Kung Fu brothers? Like my direct brothers, not so much, but I've had, uh, it is a very common, common idea here. Um, and I would say that even some of my, my Liang Bagua family uncles, I've heard one or two of them say the same thing, especially when that whole Xu Dong thing came up. Like, uh, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to stick my finger in your eye. I can't do that in MMA. I'm going to hit you in the groin. And, and it's too deadly. Our techniques are for killing. And I'm like, okay, but at a basic level, if you're able to poke somebody in the eye with your finger, you're able to punch him in the face. Okay. Yeah. If you're able to kick him in the groin, you're able to kick him somewhere else too. If you're able to stop his takedown and apply some break, you're able to do that uh, in any situation. Uh, in 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 a, in a for example, in a challenge match or a com a sporting combat uh, realm. That's why MMA is pretty open. I mean, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some uh, 
restrictions. But if your go-to is to say that I'm going to use a killing technique like poking in you, what if the poke in the eye doesn't work? Are you telling me that's all that there is in Bagua or Xingyi? There's a poke to the eye and a kick to the groin? Is that all? All these techniques, all these methods, and you're going to sit and chalk it up to, I'm going to poke you in the eye. That is just, unfortunately, it's dishonest. It's just dishonest. That's, if you can, like I said, if you can strike the guy in the eye, you can punch him in the face. You, you, you should be able to work well in the free movement phase of combat, in the clinch phase of combat, etc. So what's, what's going wrong now? I mean, that's just excuses. That's all. Right. I mean, one thing I think Boss Rutan talked about at one time, too, and I've, the, the very few altercations I've had in life and uh, people I've talked to that have had them, the level of violence you bring it to, like if you start grabbing someone by the hair or the groin or biting and scratching, they're going to do the exact same thing back to you, especially if you're close enough to do yeah. something like that. You know, it's not like if I'm if I come up to you and like I try to grab you and twist your groin, you can do the exact same thing to me up that close. You know, it's yeah, not yeah. like the other thing is this, is that if you can't beat someone with rules, what makes you what makes you think you could beat them without rules? Yeah, well, exactly. That, exactly. Yeah, that's my biggest thing right there. Um, well, at a fundamental level, combat is about position, timing, angling. Uh, you know, uh, the, these are the fundamental aspects that are about that are in all martial arts combat. Doesn't matter what style. Right. So, at a fundamental level, if you can't use position, timing, you know, these movement, what makes you think you're going to be able to use your deadly techniques? Right. So, I mean, have you heard people say yeah. ridiculous stuff like killing blows from an iron palm or anything like that? Have you encountered that? I have, oddly, met people that say Really? I mean, I, a lot less than before now, I would say. But yeah, I've heard it in the past, but no. I mean, iron palm, I mean, okay, I do conditioning. That's just called conditioning. I don't expect it to kill people. It's just right. going to make my bones harder. And they are, they're harder than most people. That's it. Right, right. That's for attack. That's for attack and defense. I remember my first one of my first fights that I ever got into as a, as a kid. Like uh, I'd been doing martial arts, and uh, the only thing I remember after the fight was how painful my shins and my feet were. I, I w- they were in so much pain because they had smacked up against this other person's bones that made contact. Not intentionally. Here's here's the other thing that people don't realize. Unintentionally. I had slammed my shins and my toes and bones into his bones and corners of his bones that I was limping for two weeks. Okay? And that's when I realized, oh, this conditioning thing is not about killing your opponent. It's about not getting destroyed yourself, you know? And it's, it's important. Anytime you're hitting somebody, you're taking force back. And uh, the, 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 the quick reminder here is that fighting is not just about hitting your opponent. You get hit too. Right. Right. Does Shingy focus on a lot of iron shirt, iron body conditioning, stuff like that? Well, it used to. I'd say it's a lot less now, but conditioning was something that was staple for most martial artists a long time ago, especially Shingy and Bawa people. Mm-hmm. There was... A lot of conditioning being done anyway. So, uh, forearm bashing, shin bashing, tapping, hitting things, you know, it was pretty common. Right. Yeah. Have you ever seen that style called Wuzu Tren? Yeah, yeah, Five Ancestors. Yeah. Have you seen the one of the old man striking the corner of a, of a, of a stone pillar? 
Yeah. That was, and that's how it used to be. And, and it's quite, it's quite more prevalent in the Southern styles. Okay. Okay. But originally Xingyi, Baguan, all the other ones probably did similar stuff as well. Would you say? Yeah. They all had varying degrees of different types of uh, conditioning. Okay. Uh, you mentioned, you mentioned Xu Shaodong. So why not? Yeah. Let's go down that road if you don't mind. Um, sure. I don't have an issue with the guy. It's not a big deal. You know, I, I was not like, to me, it was no big deal when I first saw it. I was not shocked at all. Uh, yeah. I, I was shocked that it blew up. That's what shocked me. Um, yeah. Why did it blow yeah. up when guys like you and me already knew, we've seen stuff like this a million times. Um, we, we already knew what was going to happen. Like, wh- why did it blow up this time? How did that happen? Um, so there's a, a few really uh, important background things that people just don't know unless they were here and unless they've lived here, unless they understand what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say in the last six years, the nationalism, the level of nationalism here has been amplified by like a thousand percent. Oh, I remember. Remember um, the protests against Japan during the, the Senkaku Island? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. I remember. So. So that's part of it. And also the, the, the rhetoric is about greatness of the Chinese people, greatness of the Chinese culture, greatness of the Chinese history, superiority is all connected to all of that, etc. So now you've suddenly got this guy who's ostensibly representing a Western idea, beating up something that's ostensibly the, the greatest, most revered Chinese martial arts system with thousands of years of history and blah, blah, blah. And not only beating him, but beating him in like a handful of seconds, you know, and in a very, very clear way, not as if it was like, ah, they all, he almost lost. No, he, 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 it was just hands down annihilation. So that was part of the reason it blew up. I mean, I was in Xu Shadong's gym, and maybe you've heard before, I was in his gym maybe the day before he went down to fight Lele, and I didn't, I didn't, there was, it wasn't even made a big thing about it. There was nothing about it. There was no, uh, big media. It wasn't. It was just Xu Shaodong being Xu Shaodong. He had a he had a channel. He has a he had a like a online platform presence where he would uh, a chat room and discussions and people would talk about MMA and he'd talk whatever he wants to. And Lele had actually come in there before. And this is what people don't know. And never mind the TV show that he had uh, been put on TV being oh revered as the gosh, yeah, yes. I remember that. So oh. you see, people don't know that gosh. because because this is yeah. So a lot of people are like, oh, he's not even a master of Tai Chi. Excuse me. Whatever you understand about him being a master or not, the point was that he was deliberately portrayed like that for I'd hate to say it, nationalistic reasons on TV with fraudulent and fake activities and abilities being presented. Remember okay? the bird that thing? Was done. Remember the that, bird thing by yeah. him? Oh. And the watermelon thing. Oh, no. And yeah. of course, the token white guy who's a Thai boxing champion who beats a Thai boxer in the beginning of the show to show you that he's really good because he could beat a Thai boxer and then Lele de- defeating him like it's a joke, right? Right. All staged, all set up. With a, with a direct underlying message. So people can't catch the message. So anyway, but Lele comes into the group with a video of his student uh, talking a whole lot of shit with like a skeleton, trying to show the mechanics of a bone and showing how he can come out of a locked up rear naked choke with one hand. That's oh, where he, he push up on the guy's elbow, right? When he was sitting down? Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. yeah. So Shushan said, really, please try that with me. 
And that's how it started. Mm-hmm. Now, who's to blame here? I mean, we could all sit and say, oh, let's just keep quiet and mind our own business. But I think at this point in time, the audacity and the level of which it's not just some guy like Lele presenting himself, but it's an endeavor to present him as something he isn't. Sometimes they need to be called out. And that's what he did. And I was in Shisharung's gym. Um, my my jujitsu teacher was actually teaching a couple of days a week in his gym to his guys. He was teaching them uh, grappling. So I was in the gym quite often before that. And I, I, I know Shisharung, but he's a nice guy. He's, uh, he's okay. He's ta- he speaks very directly. He's uh, he's a Beijing guy who's uh, was a combat athlete. So he's got a dirty mouth. So what? For me, some of the most honest people I've met are the people with the foulest language. So what? My wife. And uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's just how it is. I don't. I'm not really interested in his vocabulary and. Um, and uh, I, I asked him, oh, you're, I heard that he was going to go down and fight this guy. And it was nothing big. You know, he's like, yeah, this guy, I'm going to go down tomorrow. And then the day, I, 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 the day after, he, he was back and he was back in the gym like nothing had happened. He didn't expect anything. And, uh, and just a few days later, it just exploded, right? So he didn't plan it. It just happened. And, and he got seriously attacked because of it. So I felt bad. Yeah, him. it was. I, I did. He he's kind of suffering now in China, if I'm not mistaken. His social credit score, because they have like that uh, Orwellian well, yeah. social credit thing going on in China right now, you know. So yep, yep, yep. yeah, 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 yeah. He did, he did. So he still is, but he's still Xu Xiaodong. He's still himself. He's still carrying on doing what he's doing mm-hmm. um, as best as he can. Uh, he was just he just fought in Lumpini on the weekend. I don't know if you know that. Oh no, I didn't. In know. Thailand. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> Well, he fought against a also a retired kind of MMA slash karate guy from Japan, and it was a very quick affair. Um, I think they fought the first round with other rules, and the second and third round with full MMA rules. And Shishadong just took him down, grounded, pounded him, and that was the end of that. Um, look, I don't know why he's he's fighting these guys and what the point is like of that match anymore, mm-hmm. but you know. Doing his thing, so that that's that's what's what's going on. But yeah, I would back to your question: why it became what it became, and it was connected to what I mentioned earlier. Okay. And they've got this uh, they've got this agenda now here with soft power and using Chinese culture, specifically Tai Chi and Chinese martial arts, as a soft power thing internationally. So this guy came out and literally just in one move destroyed the reputation of Chinese so-called Tai Chi. So the backlash was huge. Mm-hmm. But guys like you and me, anyone, someone in the know, I guess, knew that that what was that's what was going to happen. It was yeah apparent from the from the outset so well you know what i was thinking as soon as that fight ended and people were in the the blowout started happening i'm like well welcome to ufc one china i mean right we've answered (laughs) had this question asked and answered a long time ago you know what i mean so especially ufc two i don't know if you remember the costumes half the guys were wearing in ufc two it was insane right right Yeah. yeah 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 exactly so, so yeah, interesting. Fighters are still fighting Xu Xiaodong. I don't know where they're getting these guys from. Why are they still doing this? 
I mean... Oh, well, I'll I'll give you a bit of insight on that, too. I mean, guys, after the whole thing blew up, were just randomly arriving at his gym. And this is half the time people don't actually see it. They were just randomly arriving at his gym, demanding a match. Or And he's he was very, very much always trying to talk them down. Uh, especially looking at them, knowing that they have not a chance in hell. He'd be like, are you sure you want to do this? I mean, let's, let's just leave it. Okay, how about, how about you fight with one of my instructors first and see how you fare against him. We'll use whatever rules you want. But a lot of the guys were very, very aggressive or just, just outright being, you know, disturbing everything there. And Shushan mm-hmm. would handle them. He would handle them more. He'd get one of his instructors to show them what day of the week it is and then they'd leave anyway but that was more common than people actually know that was very common the official big fights are it's the same thing just people that are coming in and trying to make it bigger so public challenging or there's some famous guy trying to arrange a, a big match and you saw the result of all of them I mean it's always the same results so yeah. because it's not to say that they're representatives of good Chinese martial arts, no, but they are representatives of uh, the bad parts of Chinese martial arts, which are far too common. So that's that's just what it is. Yeah, I just... It, it, you have to be delusional if you think you're going to go in and be a semi-professional mixed martial artist. If you're not... Well, exactly. ...semi-professional athlete in one way in combat sports. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's, Well, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. You can't first, and you can't compare a hobbyist to a professional athlete, even if they're yeah. a journeyman level or a C level athlete. They're still they're still an athlete, you know. It's just there's it's a, there's a level there. I, I think a lot of people in, in in traditional martial arts of all styles of traditional martial arts are kind of they can't really accept that, you know. Like, well, I can't use all my deadly techniques, so that's why this guy like no, he wins because he's a better athlete and he's more experienced in combat. That's just it. Oh yeah, there's two different levels, and I mean, I I filmed a documentary in Guangfu, which is Yang Lu Chan's uh, hometown, and uh, they called me for a documentary, and and they did a long like one-on-one interview with me, of which almost none got put into the final documentary mm-hmm. at the end. Uh, I mean, the rest of everything that I did there was, I mean, that was in the documentary, but the one-on-one discussion that they had, and one of the discussions was about this issue, it never found its way in the documentary. I got my hands on the footage and I put subtitles on, it's on my YouTube channel. And I, I mentioned the same thing. You're talking about a, a, a standard different at its, at its fundamental level between a hobbyist and a professional. Never mind Xu Dong, but in general, combat athletes in general they're training full-time like pros don't expect a hobbyist to to be on the same just on on that level it's it's completely different um Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing like saying a formula one car and it's a specialized combat you know like a formula one car and a day-to-day car you know right formula one car is gonna destroy you in that environment Mm -hmm. But I don't want to drive a Formula One car down the road to buy milk. It's just not practical. So right. you got to look look at these different things for what they are, and and not try to compare them as oh the one is the other one and this one is better than that one. No, they've both got their ups and downs, pluses and minuses. But let's understand what we're comparing here at a basic level. A professional combat athlete and the hobbyist. It's just not. It's you're, you're asking already for. You're already on a handicap right there. Right. Yeah, I, uh, there is. Outside of a lucky shot, I mean, I don't believe in luck, but you know what I'm trying to say. Outside of a fluke 
strike yeah. landing. It, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And Xu Xiaodong was not even a good MMA fighter. You know what I mean? If we're being totally no, honest. not at all. No, he he wouldn't be anywhere. I mean, he's not even king of the cage level. I mean, you get what I'm saying? And yeah. That also yeah, kind yeah. of speak, exactly that speaks to the gap when it comes to a traditional martial arts hobbyist and an MMA practitioner of, of some sort. You know? Correct. Yeah. Correct. I think a lot of people, I, I, I was reading stuff about Xu Xiaodong being a former champion. Like, what are these people talking about? He's not, yeah. you know, compared to me, he's a, he's, he's awesome, you know, but compared to, he's not a good fighter. You know what I mean? Yep. In, 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 yeah, yeah, but, yeah. So, does he know that you do Xinyi uh, uh, and Bagua? Does he say anything to you about it? you guys ever talk about it? Well, he knows, but I haven't. I mean, my my jujitsu coach left his uh, gym a long time ago, and Xu Xiaodong's gym got closed down by the government and moved. And uh, I haven't really seen him since. I mean, I haven't. I mean, there's no point for me to just go, and it's pretty far away from where I am now. But I have wanted to actually set up a time to go and just have a discussion with him and an interview with him, and I'll see if I can still get around to doing that and if he's willing to do it. So, but no, I haven't really seen him for. Oh, I mean, more than a year, probably. So, oh, okay. yeah. If you could do that, that'd be awesome, Byron. Have a drink with them. If you put subtitles up as well, you know. Well, that's what I have to do with him. And it's the same. I did this interview with Zhang Weili, and it'll be an interesting one because it's a totally different focus from the usual interviews that people are doing with her now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it has to be video with subtitles. Otherwise, no one understands what's, what's being. I can't do a podcast version of it. Right, right, so, right. Yeah, I do speak Chinese, but still, even sometimes I, 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 re- I would like to have subtitles. Just it, it, it's easier for me, you know. Sure, sure. Um, speaking of your Chinese, how long did it take you to learn it? You know, and do you think you need to know Chinese to be able to train properly with a, with a kung fu teacher in China? Well, with my teacher, you do because he doesn't speak English. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that kind. Of, that, that's uh, that's the one thing. But I think the other side of it, if you really want to go deeper into the traditional arts you you should understand the language Uh, so you can read the text you can understand the context of the language used uh, the cultural connotations it's all connected so to go deeper into it i would say it's pretty important but it's not i mean for example if i had to teach somebody i could be that link if you know what i mean so if you have a teacher who's uh, who's uh, proficient um, he'll be able to introduce those things in your own language anyway. So, but for a cultural activity, if you want to go deeper into the culture, yeah, you should learn the language. So, mm-hmm. I started learning Chinese because I went to a, a, a Chinese high school. Actually, um, it was a high school that was run by at that time the Taiwanese government, and, uh, and China. It was a Chinese school, and we had Chinese language lessons. But honestly speaking, I mean, my Chinese really picked up. When I came to China the first time, something just clicked because I was learning it overseas, but had no incentive to use it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So when I got thrown into the environment here, just a couple of weeks in, something just went click, and I was like, "Oh, it just all started coming out." I can't explain it actually, mm-hmm. but yeah. And for those that don't know, you've lived all over the world, basically, right? East, west. Yeah. I've- I've lived in most continents. I was born in South Africa. I've lived in Brazil. I've lived in the USA. I've lived in Europe and Cyprus. I've lived in China now in Asia. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And how much longer do you plan on staying in China? Do you have a, a plan yet or are you still just enjoying your training with your master? Is that what the, what's going on right now? 
Well, honestly, I mean, I don't know how much longer. I don't plan these things, but my teacher is getting old now, and that's why I came and decided to be here 10 years ago, just so I could be closer to him before he gets too old. So, um, and uh, he's going to be spending more, his daughter lives in Australia, so uh, he's formally going to be Really thing? Yeah, so I mean, getting older, you know, he's got him, my, my, my Sherpa and Shermo, they've got one child. She's in Australia. It doesn't make sense for them to be so far away in their older age from their child. So I think they're going to be, I mean, the reality is even this year, he was there for about six months. He's just back now, but he's only been back for a couple of months, and I think he's going to go back. So there's, uh, he's not going to be here much. Much more, if if you know what I mean. He'll be here. He'll be there most of the time, if not all the time. Mm-hmm. So this is what'll push me into my next phase of where what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go. But as it is at the moment, I have got a plan to leave immediately. I'll see how things pan out. But yeah, mm. I was here for him. That's the key point that I'm trying to make here. Right. So. Right. And you could, probably could have lived in other places. I mean, if your parents were able to travel so much, you probably had you had your pick of where to live. And, you know, you kind of made the choice to be close to him. I really respect that. That's awesome. Well, I could. I, I mean, I have a European citizenship, so I could live anywhere in Europe, too. But, yeah, the, the key was to spend important years uh, very close to him. That was, that was what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Do you two ever have like deep discussions about martial arts and you know the, the the depth of philosophy behind different things or how to use this against that? Do you guys ever have conversations like that? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, it's uh, always varying topics and varying things. But yeah, I mean, I've had very deep discussions with him. And you know, I must say one thing though. Even over from when I first started training with him to when I moved here and watched him age and grow old. Even his uh, perspective on things has shifted slightly, and that has to do with where you are and what stage of your life you're in and your physicality and all of that. It all, it's all affected. So I remember when I first started training with him what a hard man he was, and he's kind of softened up in the last year or so to a degree. Um, but that's just expected, right? I mean, he's, he's over 70, so well, what do you expect? Mm-hmm. And your wife was a martial artist and a wushu athlete too, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, she was. She was. Okay. And does she still train with you? Does she still do martial arts? She does. She still practices some of her own stuff, but not as seriously. But she doesn't do anything that I do. I mean, we do completely different things. She doesn't do Shinyo or Bagua at all. So, okay. no. Is she still involved in, in wushu in China? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. China's pretty interesting because if if you go from an athlete to, and you stay in the system to an athlete, you'll probably then be posted as a coach uh, and then you'll just carry on from there. But if you break that, uh, and she did, she lived overseas for in South Africa for about 10 years. If you break that, then you're not going to just come back into that system. You know, they've got, they usually work within a closed system. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Well, Byron, I really, I mean, it's been over two hours. I apologize about that. I could talk to you all day, but I realize you have a life, <laughs> so, and you need to start no your problem, day. No problem, no problem. It's been good. It's been a good discussion. Um, how can people get a hold of you 
Um, what do you have out there and uh, what's next? Well, I started making just out of uh, interest point of view, started making these 10 minute primer videos that are in English for Xin Chen on my YouTube channel, which um, I try to release one a month. And they're not supposed to be in depth, but they're supposed to be technically very uh, uh, clear and meticulous in what they present from my uh, Xin Yi uh, learning. And uh, that I've started putting on my YouTube channel. Um, so I have a YouTube channel that I'm starting to try populate with at least some things that are of value of an interesting thing of interest to Chinese martial arts, but martial artists in general. And um, I've started another thing which I'm trying to do just to show and showcase parts of Chinese martial culture here in China. It could be anything that is rarely seen so or just interesting. So there's two things that I'm trying to do every now and then. And of course, I've got that podcast, but my podcast is something that I want to, I, I like to do it in person. That's just the way it is. So we can have a couple of drinks and also just leave it long form so can talk as long as possible. So these are the things that I've, I've been busy with and they're all on uh, on my YouTube channel. I think the, the YouTube channel is probably the easiest way to just find me, which is uh, uh, Mushin Martial Culture. Um, that's the name of the channel. And I guess that's it. Or well, Facebook. Uh, somebody, you can look me up in, on Facebook. Send me an email if, if you need be. And my, I made a website for my teacher about oh, more than 10 years ago that honestly hasn't been updated for a while, but it's still up and running. And I can send you the URL. So these are ways to contact me, I suppose. Um, will you make any Bajwa videos, primer videos? Maybe. Maybe in the future. I'm still gonna. My key right now is to get through the five elements, so of Xin Yi Chuan, and then I'll see what I feel like doing next after that. Those videos so, are of a very high quality. I, can, I highly recommend them. They are amazing. Thank you. You thank did you. Well, incredible. Job. I've, I've never done video editing before, so this was also a new thing to learn how to do. So it's been uh, it's been interesting. I'll say that.